Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 29, Careers Advice. But why haven't you got occlumency lessons anymore, said Hermione, frowning. I've told you, muttered Harry. Snape reckons I can carry on by myself. Now I've got the basics. So you've stopped having funny dreams, said Hermione skeptically. Pretty much, said he. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Kyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Friends, we'd love to see you at some live shows coming up. We have Harry Potter and the Sacred Text live show in Holyoke, Western Massachusetts on May 8th. Vanessa and Ariana are doing a live show of the women of Harry Potter here in Cambridge on May 14th. Come to harrypottersacredtext.com and buy your tickets there. So Vanessa, you know that my family is Dutch, even though I grew up in England. And my maternal family has a shared house that we share with my cousins and my second cousins. And it was built after the Second World War. And it's right on the coast, right on the beach in Holland. And it's called Freedom De vrijheid. And it was built in honor of my great uncle who was killed in the Second World War at sea. And his unspent wages went towards building this, this family house. And I grew up going there, you know, a couple times a year. The whole family gathers at Easter. We'd be there in the summer. And the town is a tourist destination, right? It's right on the beach. And so a lot of people come and visit, including a number of Germans who travel across the border and come on vacation. And growing up, I used to call, my whole family called these tourists Dicke Deutsches, which literally means like fat Germans, oh my God. which is obviously so rude and inappropriate. But what this was actually about is that my grandparents and my great grandparents had a loathing for their experience of the Second World War. Holland was occupied by Nazi Germany. My grandparents met the resistance, the Dutch resistance movement. And my mom was given money by my grandparents when she failed a German test. So like anything to discourage her from succeeding at German, even though German is, of course, a fabulously beautiful language. So I'm thinking how each of these small little things, right, the money for a failed grade, the way to talk about these tourists, like all of them were little revenges against a Nazi occupation, which at that point had been decades ago, but had still shaped my family's memory. So I'm interested to think about revenge is something that happens sometimes in the moment, but sometimes can be generational. And it, I was actually acting out that revenge without even knowing that I was doing it. But Vanessa, there's one thing that I need to have revenge on first, which is winning the 30-second recap. Because I won it last week in San Francisco. And in L.A. Yeah, but that's not recorded. People don't hear that. But I know it was true. <laughs> I'm so sorry for your loss. <laughs> All right, 30 seconds on the clock. 
chapter 30, careers advice in the UK edition, career advice in the US edition. Here we go. So they're all deciding what it is that they want to do for their career. And Harry is really sulking because he really wants to talk to Sirius because he hates the idea that his dad was a bad person. And the twins are like, oh, we want to do a big stinky thing anyway. So you can go and talk in Umbridge's office to Sirius while we do this distraction. In the meantime, he meets with McGonagall and Umbridge is like, Harry is failing my class. And McGonagall's like, I will make sure that he doesn't fail and that he becomes an aura if he wants to. And then he goes and talks to Sirius and Sirius is like, not that bad of a guy. And friend George set off all the things. And they're like, give him hell, peeves. That was very strong. Thank you. So much happens. I loved this chapter. It's a really good chapter. It's so fun. And ugh, the twins. I can't believe they leave Lee Jordan behind. I know. Always the third wheel. (laughs) I know. Just because he's not a twin. On your mark. Get set. Go. So in the classic Hollywood tradition, this scene centers around two grand dams having the most amazing, not even witty banter. It's like nasty, perfect zinger banter. I will make sure Potter is an aura if it's the last thing I do. And then Umbridge is like, well, now I understand you want Dumbledore to be minister. McGonagall's secretly thinking inside, no, I want to be. I want to be the minister. Anyway, it's an amazing scene. We learn about different careers tracks, but what's much more fantastic is those perfect repartee moments between Umbridge and McGonagall. Vanessa, I went in for like one scene analysis just because I thought yours was so evocative. Thank you. Thank you. Fulsome, rich in detail. If you think I'm going to interrupt you from complimenting me, you are woefully mistaken. What else was I? (laughs) I love that. Is there more? (laughs) Yeah. Did I look beautiful while doing it? Exactly. (laughs) So let's dive into this theme of revenge, Vanessa. And let's look at the scene that you so powerfully drew our attention to. I think that that's a great place to start. So I think that there is an argument to be made that Umbridge is sitting in this room, like rubbing it in, having won. Yes. Right. Which I don't think revenge is just the business of the losers. Oh. Umbridge is in this moment feeling as though she has won. And she is rubbing it in McGonagall's face. Well, and also, this is really interesting, Vanessa, because revenge is not always about the person that you're taking revenge out on, right? She is going all in on McGonagall, but it is mostly about Dumbledore, if not other things in Umbridge's life that we just haven't had the privilege of learning about so far. Umbridge is being her usual odious self. Right, she starts by just clearing her throat and then it becomes more constant coughing. And then in the end, I mean, they are shouting at one another while Harry is sitting there. And it's ostensibly about Harry's future career choice, right? Whether he can be an aura or not. And Umbridge is saying, like, his grades are not good enough in my Defense Against the Dark Arts class. And McGonagall's like, your grades don't matter because you're an incompetent teacher, right? So we see this conflict grow and grow. But I think that Umbridge's revenge is is really about taking it out on someone who represents Dumbledore rather than McGonagall specifically. That's interesting. I, I definitely want to explore that idea, why she's so mad at Dumbledore. But I also think that McGonagall is the teacher that we have seen most blatantly and consistently disrespect Umbridge. In her classroom, she's like, can I help you? What are you doing here? Right. I'm interested to hear more about why you think that this is actually about Dumbledore, because I'm compelled just by McGonagall is there and like questioning Umbridge's authority and Umbridge is dictatorship all the way. Nobody will question my authority, even if that means I have to now sit in 
on one-on-one meetings. Like, if I were the headmaster of a school, talk about something that I would feel was beneath my notice, right? Is a fifth year's career advice meeting. <laughs> like, who cares? But she hates McGonagall. She hates Harry. Well, now, see, now you're starting to sway me because, of course, McGonagall has just some of the best lines. Like, she knows how to handle Umbridge the best out of any character that we've met so far. It's really disdainful. At the end, she just says very calmly after Umbridge has kind of been shouting at her, you are raving. And kind of that's her revenge on Umbridge is to not get sucked into that dysfunction and that anger. So there's plenty of reason, as you say, for Umbridge to want to take revenge on McGonagall just because she's been the least able to be manipulated. Like, she can get Dumbledore fired, right? And she did. But maybe she can't get rid of McGonagall in the same way. Yeah, I wonder if McGonagall is just like, you know, functionally a good teacher, right? And a head of house, right? There's a very practical pastoral care role. Like, who would take that on? Are you going to give that to, the, you know, a ghost? I mean, like, Umbridge wants power. And Umbridge would love to walk in and be able to say, now I'm the Gryffindor head of house, too. God, can you imagine? But I do wonder if Umbridge thinks of herself as someone with integrity. Mm. And therefore, as like Minerva McGonagall is technically a competent teacher, I am a woman of integrity, so I will not fire her. You know, that is really interesting, Vanessa, because we have seen Umbridge throughout these books really follow the rules. Yes, she's changing the rules in order to follow them, but she's very oriented around control on that grid of are you good to evil and then chaotic to ordered. She's very much on the like the ordered evil And do you know what this is making me think of is little kids also will do this where they're technically following the rules but being terrible. Like you put your hand right in front of your sibling's face and you're like, I'm not touching you. You can't get mad. (laughs) Not touching you. You can't get mad. And that is sort of what Umbridge is doing now. And then the goal is to get your sibling to hit you and then be like, how dare you resort to violence? You monster. You're in trouble now. And Umbridge is like, I'm not doing anything. You can't be mad. I'm just sitting here. You can't get mad. I have something to say. You can't get mad. And she's trying to bait McGonagall into doing something potentially worth firing. And by keeping someone who she dislikes but thinks she can control, it's actually a beautiful tactical move of like, but look, it's not about who I like and don't like. I don't like McGonagall, but she's a good teacher. And so I haven't fired her. Right. I'm persuaded. I don't think this is about Dumbledore as much as I did before. I think that's really true. I mean, I do think that this is about Umbridge wanting to curate as much power for Fudge as she can, right? And so it is interesting. It does seem like this micro-revenge, the way that you were talking about it with your family, of like, really? You are now the headmistress of Hogwarts and you are the whatever minister of education is this the battlefield that you think is strategically to your advantage? And it does seem like this like name-calling guerrilla warfare that she is engaged in of like Dumbledore is gone. And so it is my world now. The thing that really scares me about this, Vanessa, that you're helping me connect the dots with, is that that kind of micro-revenge or the, the change in language unleashes potential real violence. We see Harry with the invisibility cloak in Umbridge's office, having just spoken to Sirius, see Filch come in and like take out paperwork, which allows him to whip students. And he says, you know, I've been waiting forever for this. And it's a comical moment, kind of. 
But it displays this terrifying truth that when those micro revenges, right, when that language changes, when the culture shifts, what you unearth is something that has been hateful and latent. It's been buried but not dead. And Filch's hunger for physical violence against children is the terrifying result of what will happen. And we see it happen in the coming books against kids. Yeah. No, it's terrible. I had such mixed feelings reading about the scene, you know, obviously knowing that Fred and George get out from the clutches of Felch and reading it through the theme of revenge of like Fred and George have been making Filch's life harder for the last six years. Right. They've been causing swamps and setting off fireworks. And and Filch is the one who's going to have to clean up this swamp. And And he can't use magic. Right. And they've been stealing from him for years. They stole the Marauder's map from him. They have really been tormenting him for a long time. Mm. So it makes sense to me that he went and followed up on this decree when the opportunity presented itself specifically with Fred and George. And I do. I just have such a problem with spoiled kids at a boarding school wreaking havoc that, like, is taken out on the janitorial staff. And this very much comes from my experience working at Harvard. And it drives me crazy when I see students act disrespectfully to the grounds, thinking that they are thumbing their nose at Daddy Harvard when really they're thumbing their nose at the custodial staff that's underpaid. And yet, thank God, friend George, you know they're leaving because how horrible would it be if this was suddenly state-sanctioned abuse? It made me wonder, like, is revenge ever a good motivation? Mm. Are people ever actually satisfied by revenge? I think that's such a good question. Because, like, something that I love about the United States is that you get tried by a jury of your peers. You do not get tried by the victims of your crimes, right? Because I think we fundamentally believe that if it was the victims of crimes who got to decide, they would be seeking revenge and not justice. And I really like that about the United States, that we separate the ideas of revenge and justice. And at the same time, juries will often hear from the victims and ask, like, what would make you feel better? I have a really vengeful nature of like... Oh, we all do. And I do think it comes from like wanting them to grow. Mm. But I do. I want them to know the thing that they did that's bad. And I'm just wondering if that's ever actually satisfying. You know, that really makes me think of the contrast of Snape and Sirius and James. In the previous chapter, we, we heard this horrible, horrible attack that the marauders kind of inflict on Snape. That group of four who were like supreme in the schoolyard now are at the very, very edges of society if they're still alive. And Snape is a professor at Hogwarts and still has, you know, has the status. And And gets the status both within the Death Eater circles and... And in the Hogwarts world. Exactly. So he's kind of got this double... I mean, obviously, it's not a pleasant experience for him most of the time, but he carries the status in both worlds. And he's not happy. And he gets every day to inflict his revenge on Harry in the classroom, right? He makes Harry feel small. And I don't see Snape being any happier. And what I do see when, as we know, Snape will die. And in that dying moment, he changes. His heart softens. And he returns to what actually matters to him, which is the woman he loved and who he has not been able to be with. Our smaller selves are always going to be vengeful, right? That feeling that you have and I have that most people have when something horrible happens to us, like we, we want the other person to suffer too. But if we can imagine, okay, I have five minutes left to live. Is that what you're going to have on your heart? No. So yes and no, right? What drives me nuts is the idea that people who've perpetrated crimes 
die on their deathbed with no sense of regret, no sense Mm. of the pain that they've inflicted upon others. You know, and frankly, with our president, I don't think he stays up at night thinking about the suffering and the fear that he's causing in people's lives. And I think that something that I have learned by doing this podcast is how much apologies matter to me. What I like about apologies is not the humbling aspect of them, but it's the promise to do better. Mm. And that to me is about justice versus revenge, right? I think that if somebody is really going to learn and say, now I want to do different, and I think everybody has to be ready to hear it, right? Like I don't think Snape at 16 would be ready to hear James say, I am so sorry for everything I did, and because of everything I did to you, I want to be a better person. But I do think perhaps if James had lived, they would have been able to have those conversations, and then Snape wouldn't have felt the desire for revenge and instead could have heard a heartfelt apology. Mm. But I think that until somebody shows signs that they want to change, revenge feels like the only way that you can get that change, right? It's like, I'm going to have to force you to be different because you are not going to offer it to me. Right. So I actually think there's a place in the text where we see that on a very small scale. But for me, it's that dynamic. Harry and Ginny are in the library and Ginny, you know, it's Easter. And so Ginny's brought an Easter egg that Mrs. Weasley has sent him. Harry's very moved. And he has a little bit of the chocolate. And suddenly the librarian, Madame Pince, screams at them and kind of like hounds them out of the library in a way that seems kind of like, overly intense. Yeah, it's like it's Easter. They're eating chocolate eggs. Right. And it's like they're not purposefully violating books or something. But clearly, here is a woman who's had to do the same thing multiple times a day, every day for the last however many years of her career. And no one has come back to say, Madam Pence, I'm sorry. I'm going to do better. Let me help you with a campaign to avoid people eating in the library. That's such a good point. You know what I mean? So like, Her fuse on this issue is so short because she has to do this all the time and it never changes. The kids might learn the lessons on like an individual level, but they're never going to go and apologize. And then the next year of kids just comes in and makes the same. Same problem. Exactly. Exactly. So I I really resonate with your point that the revenge can be hopefully transformed, perhaps at least cooled by an acknowledgement of what you did and an, an attempt at an apology if it's sincere. Yeah. So I wonder how it would be different for your family, right? If there was a formal apology from Germany, not just uh, Germany, I think, has done and we've all acknowledged a very good job in like trying to do reparations, but on a personal level of like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're now tourists here and we occupied this land and it wouldn't look the way it was if we were successful. We're so sorry. And you know what's really lovely, Vanessa? It's so interesting because one of my dearest friends in life and and one of my best friends from college is German, half German, half Croatian. And like we talked about the legacy of the Second World War in her family and in my family. I I can't remember her explicitly saying like, I'm sorry, because also it's not her apology to make, right? We're the same age. We're now both in our early 30s. But having that friendship, I lived in Berlin for a year, like the relationships that came out and the friendships that are built now, I feel like in some way, not just heal that wound, but there's an acknowledgement at this point in time of what happened and how wrong it was. Like, I am not going to tell my children, Dicker Deutsches, you know, I'm not going to use that language now that I understand what it meant. Like at this point, that revenge has melted and new bridges have been built Well, so as you know, my partner is German. Right. And I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, and he's the grandchild of an SS officer, a high-ranking SS officer. And it was like something we avoided talking about. And then there was one night, obviously, where we couldn't help but talk about it. Then there was a moment where he met my siblings, and Mm. and we started playing 
Cards Against Humanity. Oh, God. No. <laughs> and so, and Peter is just like such a trooper and had never played before. And English, I mean, he's beyond fluent in English, but English is his third language. And this is like a very cultural like game. And he played so well and was so funny and like just really clever. Everybody was getting along so well. And then at the end, we all turned in our extra cards. And I can't remember if it was Hitler or the Holocaust. Oh, but he had one of those cards and he put it down. He's like, I didn't know how to play that. <laughs> and we were like, how long did you have it? And he was like, oh, the whole game. I would never play that card. And it just felt like the universe was like making us as a family acknowledge this. Yeah. And those relationships are so beautiful, right? Like. I do think that these things can heal over time, but there does need to be these moments of of admission or yeah. reconciliation, right? If we had just never talked about it, if if Correct. Peter had played that card for the funniest effect, the just cleverest effect, it would have been a very different thing. But it was this little admission of like, let's all acknowledge that this is a really weird situation yeah. right. that I think got us to the next moment. Yeah. So, Vanessa, let's look at the final place where we really see an obvious example of revenge, which is... The twins becoming sex symbols before (laughs) our very eyes. This is the moment. I mean, this is Fred and George central. Like, this image of them summoning their brooms, saying like, oh, you think you're going to have it out against us? No, we don't need what you're offering. We've left you a stinking, smelling swamp. We're out of here. Peace. Ugh. And... If any of you want to follow in our footsteps and continue to wreak havoc, this is how you can do it. Come spend your money at our new joke shop. Yep. Which, like, (laughs) this is how much we don't need you. Also, what a wonderful way to inspire Harry of, like, look at what we're doing with your money that you gave us. Right. What a wonderful way to honor Cedric, right? Mm. Like, that is the blood money from Cedric. Oh, God, I hadn't thought about that. And they are, like, fighting evil with it, right? Do you know what I'm suddenly seeing? We had just described Umbridge as evil ordered. If you think about Cedric, he is good ordered, right? Harry is chaotic good. Yeah. Cedric would have been with them, right? Cedric follows the rules but has a sense of goodness and direction which, like, you could trust his goodness. So I love seeing this moment of revenge from the twins against Umbridge as actually a moment of honoring Cedric. That's incredible. And I think it's based off of something that you said in our in our last episode about how Cedric wouldn't have died if he wasn't so good. If he hadn't grabbed Harry's hand and said, like, let's do this together, he wouldn't be dead. His goodness is what faded him the way that it did. And so I do. I see this as honoring him and, like, sort of wish that Amos and Mrs. Diggory were there to be like, yeah, that money is being put to really good use right now. Well, and that's what I'm thinking is that, you know, so often we think about revenge as if I suffered, I want you to suffer. But as they say, sometimes the best revenge is living a good life, right? Like, is is not letting that as much as possible shape who you are or how you are or what you do. And the twins are right. Like, they don't need Newts to open this incredible joke shop. First of all, they've tested the products. They've got the incredible creativity and the skill to make them happen. And they've got the investment. They've literally already bought a premises by this point. I know. So just like revenge in a moment is actually never as juicy or or delightful for you personally as something that has been beautifully planned, executed. And then, if possible, you do it with a bang, you know. Well, and they weren't cutting off their nose to spite their face, right? They don't, like, quit in a moment of haste. 
I have such mixed feelings about the best revenge is a good life. It's something that my mother would say to me whenever I was bullied in high school. Yeah. You know, she was like, well, Vanessa, you get to go home and be you. And I'm just like, that is the security blanket of losers, right? Like, that is the security blanket of the bullied. I get to go home and be me and you have to go home and be you. But I also think it's true. I think it's like a bitter pill to swallow. But I think actually there is value for the war. I I think this is the moment Trelawney being fired was a shock to the system. Mm -hmm. But most of the students were like, she's a bad teacher. Like, I'm sad. This is obviously, you know, horrible for her. But like, I kind of prefer Firenze and I'm learning more. Here, the whole school is applauding. We're seeing the whole school united against Umbridge. You've got to hope that this is actually one of the first moments where you're seeing the majority of Hogwarts convene together, at least in that passive support way, against Umbridge publicly. They're literally teaching people how to be, like, good at revenge. To be clear, I would be standing there being like, how do I throw my bra after them? (laughs) So, Casper, we are now going to do the spiritual practice of pardes. Yay! I have picked a sentence at random in my Kindle edition of this book. And the sentence that my finger landed on is, The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter. Ahem. Ahem. So, the first step of pardes is pshat, in which we ask ourselves what the intended meaning of the sentence is. What is the intended meaning of the Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter? So this is Umbridge really escalating the conversation with McGonagall about Harry and his careers advice meeting. Harry said, well, maybe I'd like to be an aura. And McGonagall's like, well, that's tricky. You're going to have to get, you know, great grades in all of these classes. And I don't accept students who don't have, you know, exceeding expectations grade or something like that. And Umbridge keeps inserting the reasons why that would not make sense and ultimately resorts to this phrase where she's saying, like, listen, to get hired as an aura, you need the ministry to hire you and the minister will never hire Harry Potter. Within which, of course, it's all sort of assumptions that the minister's going to stay fudge. Frankly, also that Harry will get the grades. He needs to be an aura. And that even if he got the grades, it would be something personal about him. Right. So she's showing her hand that she's not as upright. This whole order thing that we've talked about, it's kind of revealed not to be true here. Right. Or that she doesn't think fudge is as ordered, right? The minister will never hire. So ding, 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 five points Slytherin. Great job, Casper. Thanks. Next step of Pardes is Remez. What we do with Remez is we pick one word out of the sentence and we trace it throughout the seven books and see how that inflects the sentence with a different, more nuanced new meaning. So what word would you like to use, Casper? Can you read it for us one more time? Happily. The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter. I want to go with the word never. Ooh, okay. Where else do we see the word never? I mean, this is kind of cheating, but because for me, it's so interesting to put it in contrast with always, right? And always as a word is so emblematic of Snape. And so to have never be this other word, like who might it attach to? I think it's just really interesting. Don't the Dursleys, like the Dursleys never speak to the Potters in like the first chapter. Yeah. It's like Petunia never speaks to her sister. Yeah. I'm also thinking of Neville, right, who is born on the same day and the prophecy could have been about him. But right, it's never about Neville, right? It's always about Harry. And yet, of course, at the end of the books, we're going to see a moment where it really is about Neville. Yeah. 
there's for me already this shadow in the word never, which is like never say never, right? Like yeah. there's always a chance. Yeah. I'm thinking of Ron, right? He's never in the spotlight, right? Things are, again, always about Harry. Yeah. I'm thinking about how Molly is saying to the twins, like, you'll never be successful, right? Like, oh, yes. you have to go to school. You'll never finish school if you keep going like this. Ah, ha, ha. She was right. <laughs> exactly. I'm also thinking of Hagrid and how he never gets to finish his education. Ugh. Right. He's kept in this limbo kind of caretaker role and, of course, then does become a teacher. But but never is really given a wand back. Yeah. Never. Where else do we think of never? Lupin tells Tonks that they'll never get married and then they do, right? So this is interesting. So we're starting to see a pattern of saying never and things then do happen. Yeah. Can you read the sentence again just and see how we hear it this time? The Minister of Magic will never employ <laughs> Harry Potter. Well, there it is, right? Like, actually, it probably will. <laughs> so do you think, I mean, we don't find out if Harry's an org. Within the canon, so we only know, Casper and I, we confess, only know the seven books. We, like, put up our blinders to all of the other stuff. But we never find out whether or not Harry becomes an or. I remember it being the thing I found most frustrating about that very last chapter. I love the last chapter of the Harry Potter books. Controversial, I know. But the one thing I found really frustrating is that you don't find out what his profession is. Right. Which itself might be a critique on how we engage with one another when we meet new people. Because the first question we always ask is, so what do you do? Which is such an unsatisfying question to really get to know someone. Except that we know how important it is to Harry to become an Auror and we've loved him for seven books. It would be nice to know if he got to reach his dream or not. Uh. <laughs> but yes, I do think that your point stands that there is going to be a different time in which a minister of magic would employ Harry Potter. The fact that Umbridge cannot see past the end of her nose and just thinks that her current moment of power is going to be the new status quo, I think just shows how out of touch with reality she is. To everything, there is a season, right? Like 500-year regimes fall. She's had power for a second, and she's already like, that will never. The other thing that this conversation has made me realize about always, which is that that is also not true, right? Mm. The greatest way that Snape could show his love for Lily is by having some basic (laughs) compassion for the son that she died for. And he never does. And so the fact that he says, I will always love her, it's a lie, right? He will not always. He will at all times pine for her, but it's not that he will always love her in the way that he wants to think that that is true. And in his dying moments, he does. So it's it's not that it's completely untrue, but I, I think what we're seeing maybe is that both always and never are patchy, right? Those absolutes are just impossible. Well, so that leads us so nicely into Drosh, which is the third stage of Pardes, in which we ask ourselves, if this piece of text was our liturgy for the week, what would we preach on? Do you mind reading it for us, Casper? Yes. The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter. The thing that I'm hearing on this reading, and perhaps the message that I would say, is that, you know, sometimes revenge can be fuel, right? That this is someone being told what they cannot do. And we know that sometimes that that's the most driving force to show you, even if I don't want it myself, even if it's not good for me, even if it is the hardest thing I'm ever going to do, what matters to me is that you see that you are wrong and that I can do this. Now, I'm not saying that's healthy or that's going to make you happy, but it can put a fire under your behind. And to some extent it does for Harry. 
I guess if I was preaching on this, I would say to look at what are our motivations, mm-hmm. right? Like why why do we want the things that we want? What is this really about? Is it about proving someone wrong? That might be okay, but is that what you want to spend your life doing is proving someone wrong who might not even care about what you do? Right. What is our motivation? That's the question I would ask. Yeah. How about you, Vanessa? I mean, I cannot believe that I'm about to say this, but I think I would really preach on our inability to tell the future in Mm. any way. The things that I have thought and have been wrong on, things like I will not live to see gay marriage be legalized to I will not live to see a black president to Trump would never win, right? Like I am a terrible predictor (laughs) of the future in any way, right? Like, and I'm not somebody who is great at living in the present. And I don't even know if that's what I would call people to just because I think that there are other preachers out there who could speak to that more authentically and give better lessons on it. But to be humble as we try to plan for the future whenever we have grand plans of things that we really want to do or things that we will never do. That's beautiful. So our last step is sowed, in which we ask the text if it has a secret for us, and we see if a secret emerges. And sometimes it emerges out to one of our listeners, and then you email us about it. And we love those emails. So email us your sods. But um, I'll read it one more time, and we'll see if a sod emerges to one of us. The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter. Can I tell you what occurred to me? Yeah, what's this? What's the sode that you had? Umbridge is accusing McGonagall of wanting all this power, but Umbridge is showing her hand as actually being the power-hungry one. Mm. She's speaking on behalf of the Minister of Magic. Mm. She has no idea what the Minister of Magic would want. Fudge goes with the wind. Two books ago, Fudge was in love with Harry. Now he's frustrated with Harry. She has no idea. And just the audacity of her, the Minister of Education, to speak on behalf of the Minister of Magic. This is a power grab to say, I can speak on behalf of him. Hmm. And so just be careful when somebody is accusing you of something. Like they are actually revealing something about themselves. Oh, I think that's so smart. The the thing that struck me is that Harry's motivation to be an aura is to protect people, is to make the world a better place, right? He he wants to serve. And he is not actually going to need to be employed to do that work. In fact, he's been doing that work for five years already. And I think, like, I just had this in a professional context where I kind of went looking for someone's advice and guidance. And literally what, what they ended up saying was like, yo, you're, you're already doing it. Like, you don't need more help. I see you doing it. And so I think maybe the sode for me is that we go out looking for for certification for something that we might already be doing and we're already doing it really well. And so sometimes those things are necessary, right, to get paid or to be recognized or whatever. But sometimes we we are just not good enough at recognizing our own gifts and the amazing things we're already doing. So that's the sode for me in this moment is that Harry's already an aura. I love that sode. And it explains the last chapter of the book better to me. Mm. Like, we don't need to know whether or not he became an aura. He's been an aura. We just watched him be an aura all of book seven. <laughs> right. Like, it doesn't matter what he, how he's making his living. His dream came true of being part of this resistance and bringing down Voldemort. Yeah. This week's voicemail is from Kat Zidane. 
Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Kat, and I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I am such a huge fan of this podcast. I just finished the episode on curiosity, uh, book five, chapter 24, and I just wanted to expand upon something that Vanessa touched upon. Vanessa, you said that when it comes to people in your life, you like to follow their lead and be curious about them in terms of caring for them and what they need. You also followed that up by saying that, however, sometimes you don't know what you need so that maybe you take that too far. And I have a lot of experience with this lately because for the last few years, I've had a series of very traumatic events befall me. And the first one was in 2016 when my mother died. And for the first time in my life, I was truly incapacitated by grief and trauma and sorrow. And I had some wonderful, loving friends who would say, I love you. I hear, I am here for you. You just tell me what you need and I will do that. But I didn't know what I needed and I didn't know how to ask for help. And so they didn't show up and they weren't there. And I felt really sad and hurt and lonely as a result. And so I think in those cases, curiosity is still great, but just shifting the curiosity just a little bit. So rather than saying, tell me how I can help you, using your curiosity to think about that person and what's happening and think what in their life might be completely falling apart right now. Maybe they've been at a hospital every day for three weeks visiting someone, so they haven't had a home cooked meal and you could bring them some food. Maybe their dog has been, you know, alone a lot at their house. And so maybe you could offer to walk their dog or maybe you could just leave them a funny voicemail reminding them that no matter what they're going through, you still think they're a fun friend and a a lovely person to know. I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to give voice to this thought and for all the amazing work that you do. Kat, this is so good for me to hear right now. I just let down a friend in a way that I just still feel really bad about. And just your voicemails helping me think creatively about how I can demonstrate my affection and commitment to this friend, even though I just failed them in in some way. So oh, that's really good advice. That's good advice. It's such good advice. And it gave me permission to put the onus back on me mm-hmm. of like, I'll say, well, I offered help and they didn't take any. Right. And now I'm like, okay, I offered help and they they didn't have an idea. So here are some ideas that I have. And I just think that that's so wise. And I think you like also just help us brainstorm some really good ideas. Yeah, I literally had like three ideas while Kat was talking. I was like, oh, I can do that. Or that. (laughs) Casper walked my dog for me when I was sick and he hates dogs. One time. That does not deserve credit. It was very sweet. So, Casper, it's now time for us to offer a blessing. Who would you like to bless this week? So I can't help but bless the twins in this chapter, but I want to bless them for something maybe a little unexpected. We hear from Ginny early on in the chapter. She describes her own character as shaped by her older brothers. She said it's impossible to grow up with them and not feel like anything is possible. And I was just like, what a beautiful thing for a younger sibling to say about an older, you know, in this case, two older brothers, that they have expanded her imagination of what her life can mean. Also, that they don't do this during people's revision time and exams because they want to respect people's scholarly work. I love them so much. 
It's the most thoughtful, disruptive act ever. <laughs> so a blessing for the twins. And, and you know, any older siblings who are modeling a way of life for their younger siblings. And any younger sibling who appropriately appreciates their older sibling. Also true. Yeah. <laughs> Girls, if you're listening. Johnny, if you're listening. <laughs> um, how about you, Vanessa? Who are you blessing this episode? So I'm going to bless Hannah Abbott again. Mm. I just blessed her two weeks ago because she was having an anxiety attack. And now she is, like, frantically trying to check out books from the library to keep studying. And I want to bless her for two reasons. One is that she's trying to do something about her anxiety, right? She's, like, trying to study. She's taken a very practical approach. It is making me anxious that I'm going to fail, so I'm going to study. And so, one, I want to bless that because I think that that if you're feeling guilty that you're a bad friend, you can't fix all of your friendships all the time, but you can call one person and, like, just do a little something to help yourself in these moments of despair that we all go through. And the other reason I want to bless her is because we all know that things like anxiety don't just go away. Right. Like, Madame Pomfrey treated her once with a calming draft, and, like, obviously it has not entirely worked. And so I just want to bless, you know, I blessed people who were struggling with anxiety two weeks ago. And I just would like to acknowledge that, like, your anxiety has not gone away and you can do everything right. You can Mm. be taking your medicine. You can be going to therapy. You can be checking out books from the library. And, like, you could still be anxious. And I just want to bless people, including myself, right, who just, like, are dealing with any sort of issue that is prolonged in their lives You know, like our tactics are going to get better. Not every moment will be a moment of despair where you have to go to Madame Pomfrey. Sometimes you'll be able to get to the library, but it's still going to be hard. And that sucks. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or join our amazing Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. If you haven't been to check out the Harry Potter and Sacred Text Common Room Facebook group, please do. You will meet just the most wonderful humans. And for those of you who haven't yet, come and join us on Patreon. We have got special content on there for you every month. You can leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you at one of our live shows. On April 13th, Vanessa and Ariana will be in Minneapolis, and we'll all be in Indianapolis with John Green on April 15th, as well as Hollyoak, Massachusetts on May 8th. Vanessa will also be making a secret trip to London on June 8th. I can't believe you told my secret. Shh. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 30, Grawp, through the theme of familiarity. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman with editing support from Ariana Martinez. Our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of Night Vale Presents. We'd like to thank Kat Zidane for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Danny Egan, and Stephanie Paulsell. Bye, everyone. Bye. Did you want to say that she was taking umbrage? Oh, God, I didn't even look at that. You were like, she's taking, and I was like, umbrage. Umbrage. She's taking umbrage. <laughs>